John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He tells us in the book of the Revelation, first chapter. He says, I heard behind me a voice, a loud voice, like a trumpet. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of hell. Here, toward the end of the Bible, in the climactic book of Revelation, God gives us his autobiography. In a sentence or two, he says, I am alive. I am is alive. That's God's name for himself. Do you remember to Moses? Who will I tell Pharaoh sent me? He asked God. God said, tell them I am sent you. I am, I am, I am. I am the God of the present tense. I am the God of this moment. I am. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am, I am. Three times here, just in this sentence alone, he affirms that statement. I am is speaking to you, the God of the present, who has been in the past and will be in our future, but who wants to be alive and vibrant in our present. The God of the now. Christmas is an integral part of the total plan and panorama of God's redemptive process. And if you and I fall into the error of isolating Christmas from the rest of the message of God and the purpose of God in the world, we will fracture our faith, we will amputate our commitment. Because Christmas is not just a little isolated sentimental moment. It is the fulfillment of the prophecies and purposes of God. It is the, the step into this world of God himself that reaches its culmination and climax when he comes again as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I think it is very important for me and maybe for all of us here today to see Christmas in its total impact upon our lives and upon our world and its relationship to the totality of God's revelation. Jesus was born to die. He was born to die. Everybody else who ever came into the world came into the world to live. Except Jesus, he came to die. Even the magi, the wise men, brought him gifts of myrrh. And myrrh is a bitter ointment, balm, used for burial. This may be the only baby ever born that we know about who was given at the time of his birth his preparation for burial. Bethlehem, 
He was surrounded by beasts. At Calvary, he was surrounded by thieves. At Bethlehem, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. At Calvary, he was wrapped in his own blood. And though the wooden crib was first in time, the wooden cross was first in intention, for truly he is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. The crib and the cross are made out of the same wood. They come from the same trunk of the love of God. They are part of the same total picture that God is presenting to the world of his love. To which event was God referring when he inspired John to write, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. To which was he referring? The crib of the cross or both? Indivisible and inseparable, one in the mind and the purpose and the heart of God. And it is my prayer and hope that in these few moments that I share with you, maybe we will catch something fresh of what God wants to do for us today and in all of our tomorrows, and that he is not like the perennial manger that goes back into the garage to await the event next year, but that he is here to do something in our tomorrows between now and next Christmas and to lead us in new and vibrant paths of life and joy and peace and purpose. You see, he came into, the, into this world with this message of, my goodness, did you hear him saying to John, the same thing that the angel said to Zechariah and to Joseph and to Mary and to the shepherds. The first word to all of them, look, don't be terrified. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I don't know any word that you and I in our unpredictable society need to hear more than that today. And God is saying it, not Buckner Fanning. The Spirit of God, the Word of God, the messenger of God, don't be afraid. I have come... To all of you, he is saying, I have come to all of you. Did you hear that? As I read it a few moments ago from the second chapter of Luke, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. My friends, there's nothing exclusive about this message. It's for everybody. It's for anybody. It's not a black tie affair by invitation only. I mean, it's a whosoever will come as you are party. It's everybody. Jew and Gentile were both in that manger. Do you realize that? Those wise men were not Jews. They were Gentiles. God was trying to tell us right then what he was trying to tell us all along, that his message was never to be exclusively that of one group or one nation or one people or one race. It's for the whole world. Everybody. Whosoever will, he said, may come. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's for everybody. It's for anybody. Nothing exclusive about it at all. And he has come with this inclusive message right into the middle of the mess of the everyday world. Isn't it something that the essence of purity was born in the filthiest spot on the earth? A manger. 
Now, when you picture a manger in your mind, maybe you are like I. We've been conditioned pretty much by Western society, and we picture an Amish farm in Pennsylvania. Friends, a Middle East stable is not an Amish farm in Pennsylvania or Ohio. It's not a Calumet Farms in Kentucky where the animals live better than the people. It's a Middle East stable. And the essence of purity, the personification of purity, was born in the filthiest spot on the earth because he came to get with it. He came to get with us where we are and as we are to help us become what we would like to be in our better moments. And I hope you're associating in your mind the crib with the cross and the words of George McLeod may come to you as they did to me with an impact that I need to be reminded of. Listen to his words. I argue simply that the cross be raised again in the marketplace as it is raised on the steeple of the church. I am reclaiming the fact, he continues, that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves on the town garbage dump at a place so cosmopolitan that they had to write his name in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, or should we say in English, Swahili, and Russian. At the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble. For that's where he died. And that is why he died. And that is where Christians are to be and what Christianity is to be about. We are to be wherever people hurt, wherever people have been denied, rejected, wherever people feel I'm trash, garbage, nothing, unworthy, immoral, uninvited, left out. Everybody could come to the manger and everybody can come to the cross and everybody can come to Jesus and that's what you and I as Christians and the church are to be about. We are to be about translating this gospel of unconditional love into the marketplace of San Antonio. And that's what that budget is about. That budget is about paying the bills for occupying the marketplace where we minister to all kinds of people who have been rejected and hurt and crucified and forgotten or ignored or rejected by the events of life. That is where he was and that is what he is about. And that is what we are to be. And that is what we are to be about. A church for anybody and for everybody. Not because it is ours, because it's not. It's his. And he says, everybody come. His message to all of us.
from one who became like us. He became like us. You understand? Please let that soak in. He became like us. He took flesh. He lived a sinless life, but he became like us. I've already mentioned Martha and I were shopping yesterday in the mall. <clears throat> we really did have a good time together. But we had trouble finding something for my Aunt Myra. Myra is my mother's sister. My mother's been dead a number of years. But Myra's my mother's sister. Has two brothers still living, Ralph and Bob. We'll see them on Christmas, the Lord willing. Well, we were looking for something for Myra. Myra is an elderly lady now, a very gracious lady. She was a head of the community chest, later the United Way in Houston, and active in the Second Baptist Church there. Marvelous lady, genteel, educated, refined person. Martha's trying to find her a gift. And, and we were in a place, and Martha holds up a purse, a big old sloppy-looking kind of purse. And Martha looks at me and says, Bugner, does this look like Myra? I said, Martha, I'm ashamed of you to say that about my aunt. I've never seen Myra look like that. Now, she doesn't look as good as she used to, but she doesn't look like that. Oh, she said, Buckner, you know what I mean. Does this remind you of, of Myra? No, it doesn't remind me of Myra. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit. You, you, you've used that phrase. You know what you mean when you say that. Does this look like that will go with that person? Uh, does this look like that would uh, complement their attire, would complement their life? that they'd like to have it because it would fit them. Listen, my friend, Jesus, in that sense, looks exactly like you. He'll fit you to a T. He'll go with you. He will enhance your life. You've never known the kind of sartorial splendor you'll know when you let Jesus Christ clothe you with himself. He's like you. I got to thinking this past week about all of the emotions that Jesus experienced during the days of his flesh. I sat and just wrote and wrote and wrote. I'm sure there are more. I've reduced, uh, I, I left a few out, but I just wanted to write down all of the emotions that we see Jesus experience during those days of his life here upon this earth. Now, now, now let me mention something. Jesus experienced every emotion you and I will experience. Now, he did not experience all of the same events that we experience, but he experienced the emotions that spin off of those events. For example, Jesus was never married and divorced, but he understood what it's like to be rejected. See, he got the emotion, but he didn't go through the same kind of experience. Now, some of us have certain emotions because we feel that we have sinned. Sometimes we do sin, and when we do, we have certain emotional spinoffs from those. But listen to me carefully, and I don't have time to do more than just mention this. You can have those feelings without having any moral responsibility for them in the sense of having disobeyed God's will or God's word. Just by being a human being, you can experience some of the emotions that come into life that do not have any direct relationship to some causative factor such as a willful transgression. Now, having said that, let me just mention a few of the things, the feelings that Jesus felt. And you'll plug into this. I do. It helped me. Jesus felt these things. 
He felt happy and sad. Abused and loved. Criticized and acclaimed. Misunderstood, believed. Angry, comforting. Left out, invited in. Desired, rejected. Went to funerals, went to weddings, had friends of the rich and the poor, the wise, the simple, the sick, the well, the good, the bad, the religious, the irreligious, lawbreakers, law abiders. He had no real home, and yet he had a robe someone gave him, no doubt, that was so fine that they didn't tear it into pieces to gamble for it when he died. He knew the feeling of being in crowds, pressed by crowds. He knew the feeling of being alone. He had friends, and he had enemies. He felt close to God, and he felt forsaken by God. You name your feeling today, and Jesus has been right there. That's what the manger means. That's what the cross means. If you want a theological word for it, that's what the incarnation means. He became like us. He fits. He works. He enhances. He blesses, he understands, he saves, and he promises to be with us to establish a whole new kind of kingdom in this life made up of folks who have a different set of values than the going sense of values. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. What did he mean by that? He meant that his kingdom wasn't made up the same way earthly kingdoms are made up. You know how they're made up. They're made up on the basis of power. Power. Getting. Jesus' kingdom is based on giving, loving, serving. And so he is in conflict with the powers of this world, the contemporary concept of authority, because he has a different kind of authority and a different kind of power and he's working in the midst of all of these other false ideologies. And that's why he said, you pray that my kingdom shall come on earth. It comes slowly, it comes subtly, it comes quietly through people who get a new sense of values and a new set of standards and they begin to follow someone who is over all of the kings and potentates and rulers of the world, which is why the kings and potentates and rulers of the world so often opposed him. For example, Herod, look at entrenched institutionalism in Jesus' day. It took two forms, it usually does, church and state. Both of them opposed him. Both of them opposed him. When Herod got the word that Jesus, a king, had been born, he wanted to kill him. He wanted to get rid of this person who would, he would imagine would be a threat to him. And he was right because Jesus operated from a different concept of value. What did Jesus do? Jesus said people are more important than institutions. 
If you think that's a casual statement, think it through. There's revolution in that statement. People are more important than institutions. Institutions exist for the welfare of people, not vice versa. Jesus talked about the most venerable institution of his day, the Sabbath, and he said the Sabbath was not made for man. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was here to serve man, to make life better for him, healthier for him, happier for him. He was not here to serve it. And the same thing is true of government. Wherever it is, people are primary. People are the most important thing in the kingdom of God. And entrenched institutionalism opposes that so often, and when it does, Jesus opposes that kind of institutionalism sets itself up as a God and forces people to serve it. You say, well, that doesn't happen much in our day. It's happening a lot in our day. It will always happen in our day. I'm very grateful that we are about to sign a peace treaty that will destroy some missiles. I hope that's a step toward some hope for peace in the world. Well, we talked about missiles and not men. Human freedom didn't get on the agenda. I doubt if they're singing Christmas carols in Red Square today. Try it and sample Siberia. The world is still in many places unfriendly to this message of Christ because he says that people are primary. All people. Every person. What did religion do? Oh, it stayed in a Bible study. It never got there. That's what happened. The priests at the temple, they studied the Bible. They knew it. They just had a misunderstanding about Bible study. A lot of people in our day have it also. They think the Bible study is primarily the gaining of information. That's important. That's essential. But according to the Scripture, the primary emphasis of Bible study is not just informational but motivational. It's supposed to not just teach us something but to make us something and to move us somewhere where we've not been before to be a different kind of person Marvelous to quote, quote scripture and to commit it to memory. It's better to commit it to life. We're all concerned about being orthodox, and we should be. But there's a lot more concern for orthodoxy in many circles than there is in orthopraxy. Some people are just as straight as a gun barrel, theologically, and just as empty. They never get out of the Bible study. They never take the step toward an experience out in the world that will change them and change the world. That's what Bible study must do. And to isolate it and to put it into a little hothouse and to separate it from the harsh realities of a manger and a cross is to do violence to the Word of God and to ignore what He came to do. He came to change life. So I suppose the biggest concern that I have for myself and for you on this Christmas is not that we will overtly oppose the message of Christ, it's that we will be casual about it. 
sort of business as usual stuff. I want to close with a poem by one of my favorite writers. G.A. Studdard Kennedy was an Englishman who was a chaplain called Padre in World War I, a British pastor, preacher. And he served with the troops in France. Marvelous preacher. He wrote poetry. And he wrote a poem that I thought about when I thought about my Christmas and yours, and I pray these words will maybe speak to you they do to me. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet. They made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days. And human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to San Antonio, they simply passed him by. They simply passed him by. They never hurt a hair of him. They simply watched him die. For men had grown more tender, and they would not give him pain. They just passed down the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still the winter rain drenched him through and through. The crowds went home and left the street without a soul to see. And Jesus crouched against a wall and cried for Calvary. I don't believe that there can be any greater sin for Buckner Fanning and Trinity Baptist Church as a group, and maybe all of us as individuals, than not caring. According to the book of the Revelation, God respects people who are hot or cold, but detests those who are lukewarm and even says, because you're neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. Indifference, casualness, business as usual. He has come to make a difference, not just on Christmas Day, but in the life of every Christian, every day, so long as he lives. And that's the word from I am who is alive, who was dead, but he is alive forever and ever and ever, and he is the God of the alive ones. Be one. Let him be in your life the living Christ. and make it public. Shepherds did. Wise men did. Peter, James, and John did. Paul did. All the people in the New Testament did. It's for us too.
At 8 o'clock this morning, people came making decisions for Christ. I pray there will be those in this service. Give your heart to the Lord, trusting and following to the manger and beyond forever and ever. Just as I am, I come. Just as you are, will you? That's God's invitation.